Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person real or imagined, or the dark forces of Terre. It is not intended for children. This is Jim Donovan. It is currently 1pm. I'm recording this during lunch. I picked up a McRib today. I don't think this qualifies as food. Might be an Terre plot and warrants... Ugh, further investigation. I digress. I'm sitting in my car just outside the Seattle airport. This was an odd job. The text came in, investigate increasingly strange behavior in the homeless population of Seattle. Determine if it's a new drug, evolving mental disease, or something of outre-terre. Not my usual call, since I'm not a mental health professional. Anyway, the call was vague enough to be disturbing. Could be anything. Could be nothing. I'm operating on a shoestring budget since I haven't gotten any return on my past expense reports. Seriously, control. The daily stipend isn't going to be enough anymore. And since I don't like traveling without the gun Jack sent me, I chose to drive up the I-5 instead of taking a flight. I had to blow a lot on gas and coffee for the 20-hour car trip, but frankly, still cheaper than flying coach out of LAX. And I don't have to worry about TSA touching my junk. I set up shop at a Holiday Inn Express when I got into Seattle around 6.30pm. They're clean and relatively cheap, so it's a traveler's paradise. Plus, they offer a little breakfast buffet that lets me eat all the bacon and hash browns I want. So, you know, value stacked on value. See, I'm doing my part to balance the budget. Looked like there were a few homeless tents set up within walking distance of the hotel. It's more dangerous talking with the homeless at night. Some of them get violently drunk at night to mask the pain of existence. Who among us doesn't? But it was also the best chance I was going to get to find any actionable intelligence. With what Sean had experienced in the Appalachians, I wasn't going to give anyone any chance to prepare for me. Never hurts to take precautions. I moved my 1911 from its back holster to the front, making sure it was easy enough to draw in a pinch. I wish I was more used to this thing. I never really liked the idea of having a gun dangling from my waist, aimed at my crotch. Makes me consider how easy it is for that gun to go off and uh, <clears throat> turn my outie into an innie, if you get my drift. Still, sometimes it's the appearance of force, and having a gun concealed in the front is more intimidating than a gun strapped to the back. I also slipped on my iron ring, the one that I used to deal with the Fae. I had no reason to suspect Fae involvement, but if I needed to punch someone, rings on the finger provide a more effective punch than mere knuckles. I slipped the soul stone into my pocket, since I wasn't sure if this was a tangible force attacking the homeless or some kind of specter. I also hid several hundred dollars in cash all over my body, some cash in each shoe, a few twenties in my wallet, etc. I might need to bribe some folks, and I also ran the risk of being mugged, despite my gun. If that happened, it'd be better to not get robbed of everything I have all at once. I also had a few, uh, <clears throat> well, horticultural party favors, just in case they needed a more tangible bribe. Horrible as it may seem, sometimes the best way to get info is to find a junkie and offer him a free hit. I'll admit I feel sorry for him. A lot of times, they're men, well, mostly men, that have had a bad run of luck. In LA, a lot of the homeless guys got that way because they lost their jobs and then their wives divorced them and took the house. 
They never got back on their feet. It's a sad life. Wouldn't wish it on anyone. Well, maybe some people. Not a couple homeless guys by a fire barrel. They introduced themselves as Squints and the Red Baron. I have no idea why. Squints seemed to have perfect eyesight, and the Red Baron wasn't even wearing any red. Maybe he'd been a pilot before he was homeless. It took some bribery, but they mentioned that one guy, Freddy, had stopped hanging out with anybody. And then, a couple of days ago, he almost knifed a guy for a box of Twinkies. That doesn't seem unusual to me, but I have dealt with homeless in LA. They were a special breed. What got me was how worried Squints and the Red Baron were. They told me he'd set up camp in the Seattle Underground, and they gave me some basic directions. I left them with a little thank you dime bag for their troubles. Hey, it's legal in California. Just glad neither was a cop. It's probably legal in Washington. I don't know, I didn't check the laws. Who handled Seattle? Was it... Emily Nguyen? No, uh, who, who? Emily who, yeah. Anyway, haven't heard from her in a while. Huh. Seattle's underground city is a bit of a wonder. The original city covered 64 square blocks until the fire, and a new city was built on top of the old. But the old city was still lurking beneath the new. Tourists would go down to visit the safer areas of the old district, but some areas were too dangerous for regular folks. This was where the homeless camp out. They would find a place that they could call their own, even if it smelled like rat feces and occasionally flooded when it rained. And when doesn't it rain in Seattle? Officially, the city of Seattle denies that the homeless live in the underground, but, well, reality is often different from the official story. I somehow was not surprised to find out that the entrance to the underground that I'd be taking was quite close to the local Masonic temple. Those compass heads are always up to something. Thankfully, they don't have much influence out west. I've never really investigated any case involving them, but sometimes, well, paranormal Pinkertons get into strange places. I still remember the Wisconsin Cheese Cult that operated out of Masonic Lodge, and sometimes my investigations into supernatural artifacts uncover one Albert Pike. I don't suspect the Freemasons care enough about the homeless to actively torment them. Not enough in the homeless pocketbooks to pique interest, usually. This is one of those annoying situations that probably is pure coincidence. I went down a back alley, slipped between a few buildings, and found myself in front of a door with an imposing padlock. Since I was walking into an unknown situation, I wanted to have my supernatural weapons out and flexed. So, I slipped the soul stone out of my pocket. I toyed around in the Verumbicio, and connected a thread, like reality but more, from the lock to the stone. With a little effort, I mentally drew that invisible line taut, and snapped the metal holding the padlock locked. Whoops. I'd make an anonymous call to the city to get them to come fix that. I don't want some kid wandering in and getting hurt. I walked down a flight of damp stairs. I kept the soul stone out and fed just enough power to it to cast a little light. It was kind of tricky keeping the link to the visio just open enough to supply light to the stone without fully opening myself up to the power inside. I needed to navigate the area, but I didn't want to stumble around with all that extrasensory data the visio would be feeding me. I needed to keep my wits about me. Shadows still stretched for miles, and the rain that had been lightly pouring outside was dripping through the ceiling. Ghostly hands, modeled by third-degree burns, stretched through chimneys and cracks, reaching up at something I couldn't see, nor did I want to. I walked down what I assumed used to be a street or main thoroughfare in old Seattle. 
Every step I took was on an old, rotting wooden walkway. Every board creaked, and I'd often see rats scurrying away from me. They'd gather in places, whispering to other rats that shared too much of a ratty soul. The smell down here was oppressive and musky, with just the hint of mold and old poop. The light from the stone made odd dancing shadows as I walked. I ignored them, even if they turned to stare at me. I focused away from the horrors of a rotted city that lived underneath a spiritually dead one. My imagination built up what I was going to find. Maybe some giant insect cryptid that possesses the bodies of humans and consumes sugar by the kilo. Sort of like the villain in Men in Black. I'd heard of giant wildlife in some of the catacombs of Europe and in caves in the Rockies, where mankind has never fully explored, but who knows? There are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy, Horatio. I passed into a dry area and saw some of the telltale markers of human civilization littering the corpse of this buried city. I found garbage all over the place. I found a bloated raccoon carcass, half-eaten by scavenger rats. I had no idea who it lost a fight to, but I really hoped I wasn't about to find out. I heard something up ahead, someone muttering to himself. I didn't dare extinguish the crystal, because it was already night outside. It would be blacker than pitch at the bottom of a mine shaft if I lost my light. Sometimes, when you've been touching the visio too long, it becomes easier, more tempting, to open yourself further to it. Imagine it like this. You've got an itch. But rather than just really dig away at it, you lightly draw your fingernails across the itch. It quells the fire for a bit, but soon enough, it returns twice as strong until you finally cave in and begin scratching. By the same token, by using a little bit of the visio to tease a light into the soul stone, I began to be less cognizant of the dangers of opening myself in other ways. It's too tempting to overuse the visio, to make it a crutch. In my line of work, it can solve a lot of problems, but every use comes with a risk. A cost. I didn't know what I'd be paying, and because I had been powering the stone for so many minutes, I didn't care what the risks might even be. I looped a strand of reality from the soul stone to my ears. I mastered the nausea that came with it and found the threads vibrating with sound and manipulated them into the soul stone. I imagine this is what a dog hears all the time. It was disconcerting because I don't have training to sift through all the relevant data. I could hear thousands of rats just outside my view for hundreds of yards all around me. Shifting, squeaking, feeding, talking but I couldn't understand. I could hear the staccato pummel of raindrops. I could hear my own heart beating. It took me a minute to sort through the data before I could hear him. It was a somewhat manic sound of singing. It was a crooning, mumbling mess of tuneless noise. I made my way over, taking care to not make noise myself. To me, each careful footstep sounded as loud as a gunshot but I had to assume I was still stealthy enough to creep up on the singer. As I approached, I couldn't see him. I couldn't see anything. The singing was louder, but the singer was absent. I could tell by my enhanced hearing that he should be visible, even right in front of me. But there was nothing. I unhooked the hearing threads and prepared myself. The overconfident high of being so deep in the visio affected my judgment, and I chose to go full dive open my sight, my hearing, everything, to the full effects of infinite reality, 
so that I could see the unseen, including, hopefully, the singing man. When my eyes opened to the visio, I felt the euphoric rush that accompanies full immersion, and I immediately saw my prey. He had been lying down on a sleeping bag a few yards over. He had his back to me, focusing on singing to something. This must have been Freddy. I didn't have time to really examine the man beyond a cursory glance. I could see he was African-American and that his clothes were pretty well worn. Because coiling around his body, like a serpent, was a thin, sickly green lizard. It looked to be about eight feet long. Its dragon claws were clutching the skin where the man's heart beat. It had two ragged bat-like wings that wrapped around the man like a blanket. The man's eyes saw nothing but what he held, because the lengthy tail covered his face. It looked at me. It saw me. In the visio, when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back, and you open yourself up to the forces of Otraterra that you are not prepared to handle. The yellow, vertical-slitted reptilian eyes widened in apparent pleasure and desire. Its fanged mouth widened into a sneer. In a blink, it unwrapped itself from around the homeless man and stood to face me. It flapped its wings twice, and with a speed faster than the eye could follow, it flew straight into me. I reeled back, as though a stiff breeze had blown me over. But it didn't hurt. The creature was apparently partially incorporeal, for if it was merely invisible, I would have been bowled over, probably would have broken bones. Even still, after it hit me, it knocked the wind out of me. I put my hands on my knees and breathed deeply. My vision swam. Everything I saw was red. It was like I had switched my contact fluid with cherry Kool-Aid. I looked up and saw the man on the ground. He was outlined in oranges, whites, and reds. I looked at my hands, watching them change colors. I clenched them, desperate not to giggle. I could even see a tail waving behind me. The world turned right side up, and a voice whispered in my ear that my desires were at hand. The name of those desires was Twinkies. Because of whatever I was feeling, I could tell that Freddy's breath had quickened and his pulse was hammering. I could smell the stink of fear on him, and I liked it. He tried to get away from me. He crawled as fast as he could. It didn't matter. Whatever was happening to me, it had affected more than just my vision, but my behavior as well. Like liquid mercury, I flowed along the ground, crawling with my hands and feet with a grace that human beings shouldn't be able to coordinate. I snapped at him with my teeth, but whatever lizard creature had possessed me, it didn't take into account that human jaws are not elongated like a crocodile or like a dragon. I felt the rush of adrenaline. This wasn't your typical possession, where your real mind is trapped in a corner inside your brain, while you're being yanked around like a meat puppet. I full-on wanted to savage this man in front of me. He had trespassed into my lair, and I would be avenged of this affront on my territory. I batted him in the leg with my left hand, as though it was a claw. My fingernails were not sharp, and I am not very strong. I didn't do more than widen a tear in his pants. Unfortunately, the homeless man was a bit of a brawler. He kicked out with the same leg and caught me in the side of the head, sending my ears ringing. He literally knocked some sense into me. As I was crawling about, considering how to rip his throat out with my dull teeth, suddenly my reason and rational thought returned. Fuzzy 
but there was enough for me to work with. I stood back up, held out my hands and said, Hey man, sorry about that. The homeless man, though, was in no mood for explanations about temporary insanity caused by spectral ghost dragons. I can't say that I blame him. He started swinging his fists at me in giant haymakers. I was able to just get out of the way of the first couple of blows, but the Seattle Underground is pretty tight and close together. I let him push me into a wall, and then dodged just in time to let his fist smash into the wall. He howled in pain, and bent down to nurse his broken hand. I looked around his place to make sure he didn't have any weapons to stab me in the back with, and then I saw... his stash. Piles of Twinkies, all in the wrapper, all out of the box. Stacked lovingly, neatly, in five tidy piles, each four feet tall. There had to be thousands of the tiny sponge cakes. I felt a growing greed swell up in me, a desire to protect this horde from all intruders and to acquire more. Freddy occupied himself for the time being with his hand. I had to look away from the Twinkies until the giddy sensation of greed and hunger passed. The less I looked, the more I could control myself. I walked over to the Soul Stone, which was lying on the ground from when I dropped it. I hooked loops and cords and strings on the tail of the spirit that was possessing me, and I drew it into the stone. Much like with the mirror monster, it was like deep-sea fishing. The more it struggled, the more opportunities I had to catch it. It brought me to my knees, trying to bash my head against the floor. I won the fight. I wasn't inexperienced this time. The spectral dragon came out of me with a roar and was sucked into the stone. I severed all connection to the Visio. I was panting hard, but I could no longer see in dragon vision. My hearing was restored to normal. And most importantly, I no longer cared about the horde of hostess snack cakes just a few feet away. I tried to offer to take the homeless man to the hospital, but he was still angry at me. He tried to lunge at me again. I didn't want him to hurt his other hand, or worse, so I bobbed and weaved out of his grasp and quickly ducked back to where I'd come from. It was dark going, and I tripped in some foul puddles of stagnant liquid. Eventually, I decided to pull out my phone and use its dim light. I don't have a fancy phone. It's not even new enough to have a flashlight app, and the battery dies very quickly. But the screen's glow provided me just enough light to walk by, and it lasted just long enough for me to get out of there. I figure Freddy will get to a hospital if he needs to. I wanted to help him, but there's only so much you can do. I'm not sure what happened, Control, but I think I saw the source of a rare condition called dragon sickness or gold fever. It manifests as violent behavior, hoarding, and adopting a loner attitude. It makes a person into a miser, essentially. I have reason to speculate, from my own experience, but also from subsequent research, that dragon sickness is less of a disease and more a possession by the ghosts of one of the ancient dragons that have long since become extinct. Might explain more than a few murders back during the California Gold Rush. One thing I know is that whatever I sucked into the Soul Stone, it nearly tripled the previous charge. And it could hold so much more. Were I a more learned mage, I could definitely rewrite the laws of nature with this thing. Well, small ones. At first. That will have to wait, though, because I need to get back home. Seattle's too wet, and everywhere else is just too cold. I need my sunshine.
Until next time, this is Jim Donovan, signing off. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio and licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international license. This episode was written and performed by Ken Dickison, who also performed the audio editing. Ben Wheeler edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on SuperversiveSF.com, and wherever podcasts are distributed, including on Authorized TV, you'll find us. Contact us through Twitter at Pinkerton's Ghosts. Support us on Patreon or email us at pinkertonsghosts at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.